Welcome to the Internet of Things Security Institute podcast. Privacy Matters with Nicole Stevenson. I'm joined today by Tony Fish. He's an investor, an author, and a man on the cutting edge of privacy in the digital economy, particularly in terms of identity, trust, and digital governance. In his work and in his role as a leader and advocate for data rights, Tony supports a position that people ought to have control over their own data and be active participants in decisions about what happens to that data. It is a pleasure to have you on the show today, Tony. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to it. So I asked you to come on the show today because I think that you will have a very valuable perspective in terms of the relationship between uh, privacy and the protection of personal information and our smart cities. And as you know, that's the, that's the angle that I'm coming at with the podcast in this series. I really want to have and deepen the discussion around protection of personal information in the context of smart cities and in the context of IoT deployments. Um, now, I would like to talk about this smart city context with you specifically because I think there are a great number of cities worldwide required to comply with the privacy laws in their jurisdictions. And it seems that with the exception of a notable few, the important conversations around privacy simply aren't being had. And this means that there's a real potential for cities to deploy a wide range of technologies that involve citizen data in a manner that might be unchecked. It's possible, right, that cities are beavering away at privacy and personal data protection um, as an in-house operational task, just getting on with the work as best they can, but maybe not being obvious about it in terms of community outreach or engagement or published strategy. But then another possibility is that city intentions to do something, do anything about privacy are being guided by a perception of what privacy means to the communities and the citizens within that city. So if privacy is considered by a city to be a topic only of marginal importance, um, then the city's approach to the topic is going to reflect this. And I wanted to ask you, Tony, what you think is going on here. Are cities being blasé about privacy? Such a wide question, such a wide observation. Um, And one of these topics where everybody will have an opinion, and it's kind of like the joy of some of the human rights we have that everybody is entitled to their opinion. Uh, if we take, I think, first one one aspect which you mentioned, which is uh, jurisdictions and law, and while there's a general um, understanding of privacy in law, which is that the, the, the humans have a right to a space and that space should not be um, taken away from them, beyond that as a concept, implementation in law all over the world is very different. So we do have a series of topics that we haven't debated, which you're rightly bringing up, which is that we're starting to invade uh, places that people perceived were a place they could go where they were going to be safe. And that was was a legal protective space where they were going to be safe. Uh, And one of the issues that, that comes up is particularly around safety, the one that is often quoted is that um, a young female who may want to walk home, providing lighting and CCTV actually makes her safer because actually there's an environment in which 
somebody who, who, who may wish to, to cause that person harm in, in many different ways can be found and tracked and therefore actually create a safer environment, which kind of like goes against the very ideology of saying, oh, we, you should have a space where you can go where actually there's not, you're not going to be tracked and, and such like. And these very subtle debates really don't come to the fore of what the intention is of the city, where the conflicts lie. And almost if you plotted people's perception of privacy in cities as a statistic, you'd end up with a, a classic bell graph um, where everybody will sit in one, two and three sigmas. But it's the outlier cases, which you're rightly by saying things like IIT, IIT, we haven't got down to the nuances of what the intention is of what we're trying to do. And if it, that actually has a citizen benefit or it has a benefit to the technology provider. Uh, the analogy I'm, I'm often using at the moment is one of when we unpack uh, privacy in this sort of context, we like to think of it like an onion. And every time we peel off a, a, another layer, we get a better understanding of both the privacy and the conflicts or the intentions. And so each layer we go through, we get deeper and deeper meaning until we hit this core where we all go, oh, yeah, we agree that, that, that somebody should have a protected space. And then we come back out and build the services. But in these particular contexts, unlike peeling the onion, where every time you peel the onion, you get better knowledge of what you're doing. Um, this onion, I peel it and I find under, underneath the first layer a coconut. And when I crack my coconut, I find there's a kiwi fruit. And then I peel the kiwi fruit and I find there's an orange. And inside the orange, I find there's a dragon fruit. And inside the dragon fruit, I find there's a two-spouted teapot. And I look at this. Every time I unpeel a layer, I go, what am I actually dealing with? And, the, and it's a bit like humans. Every time we unpick a layer of humanity, we find a different layer which we didn't understand. And these are the issues we're getting towards. I so agree what you said. We've got to come back to human focus if we're going to talk about you know, smart cities and what their implications are. And maybe that's, that's the thing, right? That when cities are determining that they would like to deploy a particular technology or uh, roll out a particular project that involves a technology. Um, they're thinking about the data that they may glean in that circumstance and the usefulness of that data for whatever it is they're trying to do. So, you know, an example might be um, having sensors in, in areas where there's um, lots of parking congestion so that the sensors can assist the city in determining uh, who is parking in particular spots for too long so that they can you know, move them along out of there. And there's a benefit there in terms of removing parking congestion, but the flow-on discussion and thought process associated with, well, we are monitoring people's cars and there are details about the individuals driving those cars that we are also keeping track of and those individuals then may have needs or concerns associated with our, our use and our having of that data. And we're maybe just not going that far in the discussion that the, the relevant uses of technologies or the relevant uses of data are one thing, but we're not really following that discussion through. As you say, we're not necessarily peeling the layers back. Um, and when we do peel them back and we find something unexpected, perhaps that's stalling the process yeah, and, and that's stalling the discussion. It's this issue of unintended consequences. Um, and uh, a government fairly recently did a, a piece of research where they wanted to 
understand energy usage across the city. So they installed on all of the public buildings they owned a pile of sensors. And when they got the data back, they found that they had a series of black holes where obviously they didn't have buildings, so they didn't have data. And this was data about energy use, about solar, about temperature, about pollution, load, load of information. So what they did is they went to the public and they said, um, you know, for, a, for a, uh, helping in, the, in being citizens good, we'd like to install this um, sensor on your building um, and we collect the data and the data is to help um, the way that we manage the city. Fantastic. A load of people signed up. They collected all the data. Uh, what became very evident from the data very quickly was we could um, determine who was at home and who was away. And then we could work out very quickly their patterns. Uh, and if that data was then published, it was quite evident the unintended consequence would be uh, it would be tremendously easy for somebody to burgle those homes because the data was publicly unavailable. So it's, it's these unintended consequences when we start not to collect the data, but when we want to be in a position to share data. And that's the piece where the unintended consequences come in. So there's a body of work going on fairly much globally, which is how do you preserve privacy but enable data sharing? Because if there's no data sharing, we don't create a data economy. So we've got to find better ways of provi providing privacy-preserving um, technologies. And a number of the evidences point towards if we allow big tech to carry on collecting or, or big silos to carry on collecting data in the way they do, that is not going to preserve privacy. Um, so one of the aspects we've got to look at is how do we get that data back into the hands of the citizens? So your data becomes yours, which is where you kindly introduced me and said it's not about ownership of data, it's about control of the data. And you have the rights to consent to control data yourself, which allows us to get to this nuanced, is there an unintended consequence for me? I can now make that choice as opposed to, is there an unintended consequence that is theoretically possible? That does speak to what our smart cities are intended to do, right? They're actually about leveraging technology to make, and the data of citizens to make life better, right? They're intended to make roads faster and parks greener and services more accessible and the list goes on. I like the premise of a smart city very, very much. But in terms of, yes, these unintended consequences, as a privacy professional, that makes me feel quite cautious. Um, as an example of IoT and other technologies being deployed by cities, is the, the embedding of facial recognition technology in your CCTV networks. Now, in particular contexts, facial recognition certainly raises eyebrows. As an example, we, we've just recently seen in the city of San Francisco where they gave that technology a fairly big thumbs down on the basis of privacy concerns and whether the technology is in fact fit for purpose. Now, do you think that there's value for cities in doing a little more homework here before deploying their technologies that in the first instance appear to be aligned with that smart city ethos? Um, some 25 years ago, I got involved in what was the Malaysian superhighway project, uh, which would now be probably called a smart city project and it was about rolling out uh, digital infrastructure to enable the improvement of services which you just described after a long and it was several years of debate and thinking about it I, I came to a conclusion which was quite controversial which is 
the problem with smart cities is quite fundamental because if you take away problems and problems being congestion, problems being things don't work, problems being the dishwasher can't get service, the problems being I can't get my house built and everything just worked beautifully and we have this utopia vision that the city just works. The problem is all the smart people will then leave that city because what smart people are good at is solving problems. And one thing that is deeply human is solving the problems. So if we take the problems away, actually the smart people will probably go somewhere else. So there is an interesting quandary which we're not investigating still, which is saying the smarter we make a city, actually the more stupid we may make the entirety of the city. That's been counterbalanced by a piece of thinking which, I, which I've been part of as well, which is called the circular economy. So it tries to change smart city thinking to saying, actually, as a city, why, why do we carry on bringing in products and services? Why do we bring in more raw materials? Actually, a city produces an enormous amount of waste. And why can the waste not be recycled, reused and repurposed? to enable the creation of the products the city actually needs. So a city becomes self-sustaining, and that becomes a massive problem, which we haven't solved. And it's therefore, how do we use the technologies to create um, problem sets, which actually the smarter people and the smart city can actually go on to solve? The, in, the point of this is that actually this is where the conflicts and unintended consequences become really key, because that's where Effectively, the smart people are going to get really, really interested. How do we solve those conflicts? So actually, rather than shying away from trying to look at them in detail, the smarter cities have got to really bring them to the fore to enable that public discussion, because that's where people are going to go, right, this is how we can start to both use data for the good and technology for the good, because technology is neutral. It's making choices about the implementation, which is why I'm pretty sure we're going to come and talk about governance uh, as probably our next topic. The point about technology being neutral resonates with me because one thing that I see in privacy particularly is that there, there can be a tendency to, you know, put the technology up on spikes and say this technology is bad, this technology is to the detriment of citizens, when in fact the technology has done nothing, it's the use to which it is put. Okay, great. Uh, a classic example, you know, going back to the one I raised about facial recognition technologies, on, on the face of it, facial recognition is simply a tool to enable whomever to be able to consistently recognize a face across, across time and across media and so forth. The use to which that technology is put can sometimes be fully inappropriate. So, for example, uh, if social media companies are creating face databases based on user profile pictures and then on selling those databases to someone else for some different purpose, that is a use of facial recognition technology that might make the community sit up and take notice. But there are other uses of the same technology that could be privacy enhancing depending on the application. Do you think that some of this though actually may have to do with the fact that our, perhaps our lawmakers and even our vendors are not necessarily thinking through the various different use cases for their technologies before they're putting them to market? It's down to a subtlety of interpretation. 
and that subtlety is that in law um, and depending on jurisdiction the law is quite specific what privacy means uh, what marketing has done and branding has done is said that privacy is now not a law it's a um, it's a something we can use because the public are concerned about it as part of our branding so Google now you know is saying privacy is really important uh, but Google's privacy is about a preference that sits somewhere in one of their options. Apple has come out and said privacy is really important, but their determination is that privacy means that data stays on the device, which probably isn't true as much as Google's isn't true. Facebook have come along and said, oh, for the 15th time, privacy is really important. But their one is it's a setting um, about how you share data. Uh, cities are coming along going, you know, we, we've got to make a determination about um, privacy as well. And they're, they're trying to create a different view of what privacy means, um, uh, which they're not at, they're so conflicted because they want to create both private and public spaces. And they're not actually sure what they want to determine privacy as, but they're making it as a branding issue. And that confuses the user uh, or the citizen beyond belief because they look to the big brands and say, well, that's what they mean by privacy. And unfortunately, the lawmakers sit there going, but that has absolutely no bearing to what we would actually determine it in, in a court of law. So by even taking the word privacy, uh, and we do this quite often with words and create a branding out of it, what we've done is actually just created utter confusion to what it means. Um, therefore, people don't now understand the basis of privacy and they get locked into what their personal brand uh, that they happen to like, um, they believe that is, you know, how privacy should be. And therefore, we end up with some pretty um, vocal arguments as people debate actually branding of privacy, not what actually it says it's going to be. That's such a relevant point, because if we look at what privacy laws worldwide were intended to do, you know, they're intended to codify how we give effect to community rights and expectations around the handling of their personal information. And, you know, most privacy principles worldwide are, are pretty clear on specific things, such as use limitation principles or disclosure limitation principles. And then you're right, we have companies coming along saying, well, Based on our analysis of what the community wants, we are going to interpret privacy in a manner that actually is different from the legal interpretation. It suits us. And, and that, it's that fundamental part of privacy as a, as a human right. Yeah, it suits us, right. Uh, and privacy as a human right. sits there saying, you have a right to a space where you're not going to be interfered with. Beyond that, it is all interpretation of what that actually means and how you provide provisions and protections for it. When they wrote it, what they didn't quite understand or put in place was how do you create a right to a, a space where you're not going to be interfered in, in a digital world, where everything in the digital world is immediately tracked and traced. And the reason it's tracked and traced is because you have to have an IP address to be able to deliver the services. You have to have a network connectivity. You have to know where the network is. So everything the infrastructure has created 
it was set up to deliver the very thing which now overcomes the right that you believe that you have. And, and we just have not addressed this question. Yeah, and it's certainly bigger than what privacy laws that were, say, drafted in the 1980s would have contemplated for where the world would be now. Um, the, the digital economy has changed. Even, gosh, even just in the past five years, the advances in society and in technology and in the way we conduct business has just been uh, astonishing. And I don't think that many legislative frameworks around the world cope with that very well. They're intended to be technology neutral, but that interface between humans and technology means almost that some of these legislative schemes can't be technology neutral. They have to address it in some way. There was um, uh, the book fairly recently, Surveillance Capitalism, which I've I've written up because I don't agree with a vast amount of it, but one of the, the important points that she, she writes as an author is she raises a, a critical question, and it's the question that, that society has used, but she applies it to the digital space, and it's, you know, who polices the police? And we always know the police governed us, but who was the authority that made sure the police are doing the right role? And what she's, you know, she, she translates it into who decides, who's, who's making those decisions about privacy? But then ask the next question, who decides who decides? Where is the governance? Where, where is somebody else looking at this, providing an assurance to effectively the public that the big tech are not making their own decisions, which effectively they are? And you come back to some of the Californian privacy laws, you've basically got a bunch of white males who are taking their both views of capitalism in one aspect and views of socialism and converting that into their branding. And then in their branding, they're creating an image of what they believe society should look like. And unfortunately, that isn't good enough. That's, that's who decides. But we haven't asked the next question, who's deciding who decides that that's actually the way that we should be doing this. That brings me to something that I really wanted to talk to you about, which is, is it almost flips traditional concepts of privacy on its head when we talk about, well, look, if the data is about me, if it's my personal information, if it's held in my body, in my head, in my identity, should I have, you know, more choice and more control in relation to that data? And I know that a large part of your work involves unpacking the topic of consent and the concepts of choice and control around what happens to a person's own data. So reflecting again on the context of cities, what kind of a role do you see consent playing in our future? In city terms, the value of data comes from the ability to share data. And it's the sharing of data that creates value. And it creates value both for an individual and society. Some people, for whatever reason, believe that they shouldn't share and they can't see that actually society will um, not benefit by them being a citizen. And every citizen up until now really has always kind of like shared stuff for the, for the greater good. And we've shared taxes, we've shared health data, we've shared all sorts of stuff. And suddenly we're going down this uh, very protective route of saying, it should be my data and I have a choice entirely over it. And therein lies the next series of conflicts which, which crop up and occur and I always come back to, to a personal example of mine, which is my dad probably should have 
uh, died when he was very young, but he went through a series of operations. And the reason he survived is because people prior to him went through operations, but they died. But people shared what the operation was about, and his surgeon tried something new. And because he tried something new, my dad survived. And so I'm here. So the sharing of that data enabled, you know, progression. And if you stop sharing data, then that becomes a travesty. And therefore, was it my dad's data or was it not? If my dad had had a choice or the person before him had a choice saying, no, you can't share it. Reality is I wouldn't be here. So we are not having grown up debates about people and humanity and society as part of this data debate. And that's why when we talk about um, smart cities, it's a great way to start to unpack some of these choices. But we've got to kind of like also look at the city as the work and how work's going to be done and both the health of the city and the health of the citizens and how we're going to make choices and who gets to make those choices. And is it the way that we have been in terms of government or actually are we going to move to, to a new series of systems? Because actually we now have data. Again, this is why it becomes so fantastically interesting as a, as a body of topic. Because however you unpack it, you always get back to these same nuggets going, we've got to make some better ways to articulate the debate so we can actually open it up, not to have a right and wrong opinion, but actually to start to say, in the freedom of speech, we, we should have different opinions, but we've got to do it for the best of society, not for the best of one group. Deepening of the discussion around data and personal data and its usefulness in cities and its application through a variety of technologies. The deepening of that discussion, I agree, is at this point almost more important than the overall picture of what we think a smart city might be. It's understanding what we would like a smart city to achieve and what data we feel we need to do that and what technologies we feel we need to deploy in order to gather and use and share that data. It seems to be a much more holistic discussion than some of the top-down discussions I'm still observing. It, would you feel the same? Yeah, and take one example you used of cars. And as a city, should you decide that actually all cars in the city need insurance or don't need insurance and when do they need insurance is it just for the driving and if somebody doesn't have insurance should either the car the city or the insurance company have effectively a switch a kill switch which stops the person from driving the car and obviously as the insurance goes they may or may not get losses as the car goes you know it may or may not have an impact on the uh, the value of the car if it, it, it is dented but as a city it can have a detrimental effect because actually somebody's hurt or killed. So who, and this is why some of these questions come along, which is who decides who decides? And that is a way, the question that we're not approaching this with, that it's not about the insurance industry and does the data enable better insurance for individuals? It's who's making the decisions about what should actually happen to the insurance industry? as opposed to the individual just getting better insurance. And that's, again, they're so conflictual because should a city decide that actually the insurance industry in their city 
actually is going to be marginalised. This discussion, this type of discussion, this call to action almost in terms of let's get the right people around the table, let's talk about the right things um, and establish a value proposition that's meaningful. I think that's where we're at now. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show today and just lending your expertise to that debate because I do think it needs to be had and I do think that we need more professionals such as yourself being involved in this level of discussion and saying, hey, we're not doing it perfectly right now. We're not having the right discussions right now. It's not deep enough. It's not robust enough. It's not holistic enough. And this is how we start that. So thank you, Tony. I'm very grateful. Oh, and thank you for inviting me on. As a, as a parting thought, one aspect that, that we need to debate fairly fast is silo data versus data with the individual or distributed data. So it takes all of your data and gives it back to, to you, which is you know something I'm very keen on. And it's not that one is better than the other. We need both. And at the moment, we carry on trying to support silo data because the big companies with the big tech see the value in the data and they want to protect it in silos. So they try to prevent data coming back to the individual, which prevents data portability, which da- prevents data mobility and prevents data sharing because they want to control. And we've got to, as a society, find ways that uh, if we want a better, more fair, more, more choice, is to break down those silos and give data back to individuals. Well, thank you. I will take that parting thought. And along with that parting thought, I will leave some notes um, for our listeners today um, on the IOTSI website so that they can understand a little bit more about your perspective around siloed data versus distributed data. Again, Tony, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I look forward to our next chat. Bye now. The Internet of Things Security Institute supports best security and privacy practice in the deployment of Internet of Things technologies for smart cities and critical infrastructure. To find out more, please visit IoTSecurityInstitute.com.